0: Yes, from the mouths of babes, God has ordained praise. Although those weren't quite babes, were they? Still, the, the faith of a child is precious, it's innocent, it's sweet, isn't it? Oh, that we would have faith like a child. Well, my name is Matt Morgan, and it is a joy just to be back with you again this morning. And I I want to, before we get started here this morning, give you just a little sneak preview of what's coming in the weeks ahead. We're going to start this morning a series in the Gospel of John called Believing is Seeing. Throughout this account of Jesus' life, time and time again we're called to believe. And, And believing is central to the story. And so it's going to take shape more like a a flashback. Think maybe Forrest Gump, perhaps, where we're going to start at the end. We're going to start with the resurrected Lord. And next week, we're going to flash back to John chapter 2. And in John chapter 2, two things are going on. One, it's the beginning of the signs, these miracles where Jesus is revealing who he is and the kingdom plan that God has for his life. And at the very same time, in, in John chapter 2, we see Jesus foretelling the events that we're going to look at this morning. Then we're going to flash ahead to John chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12. And what's remarkable in those four chapters is that Jesus becomes our vision, Jesus becomes our guide, our shepherd, Jesus becomes our life. And if we're wondering what does it mean to glorify God, John chapter 12 will show us exactly what that's all about. Now, I don't know whether you're a regular attender here at First Baptist. Perhaps uh, this is one of those rare occasions where you're with us this morning. I want to invite you. Come back. Come back. Because believing is seeing. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to John chapter 20. We're going to be in John chapter 20 in our time together this morning. And so if you would, would you please stand with me out of honor for God as we read from his word together. And I'm going to be reading John chapter 20, just verses 1 through 10, though we're going to consider the entire chapter in our time together. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've lain him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Thank you, you may be seated. Let's seek the Lord together in prayer. Our gracious, awesome Father, how wonderful is your word, and how amazing is your Son, risen from the dead, defeating sin and death, once and for all, and and raised to triumphant victory, so that we might celebrate life eternal life this morning that he has made available to us through faith. Father, I I know in this room this morning, deep down there, there's just a mixture of thoughts and emotions, cares and concerns, troubles and difficulties. Father, you're intimately familiar with every one of those. And behind every one of those is a heart that cries for reversal Oh, Father, encourage us, bring joy and strength to our hearts this morning as we consider this great reversal that you've accomplished in your Son. It's in his precious name that I pray, amen. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in a position where the world you long for lies smashed like a precious little bug jar on the driveway? That happened to me yesterday. I heard it before I saw it. My daughter's little bug jar smashed. Perhaps you're here this morning eager to celebrate the resurrection, and you're sure of this future hope and the future resurrection day when we'll stand before Christ, the great judge. Others may be here today out of obligation or some sense of cultural duty. Yet as I look out among you this morning, there are some of you I know have experienced great disappointment, great discouragement. Some are searching, maybe even longing for a great reversal in your life. We all experience the heartache when life plays out much differently than we expected. Even more to the point, we find ourselves at various times in this journey through life given over to desperation, disadvantage. And we cry out. We cry out and we long for change. Now, if I could do it all over again, If I could go back to to my younger years, I I probably would have chosen to spend more time in wrestling. I I played a lot of football. Uh, My dad always encouraged me to to go into wrestling, uh, and I I really wish I would have done that. Now, here's one of the the remarkable things about wrestling. You see, in wrestling, inevitably, at, at some point in time, you'll find yourself at great disadvantage. And in the midst of those fleeting moments, often the match is won or lost. And so there's this move or, or this uh, point structure called reversal in wrestling where the, the one who is at a position of weakness suddenly, instantaneously almost, regains control. And in regaining control oftentimes can, can bring about the end of the match through a pin as a wrestler in high school I I started wrestling my junior year and I came to know this move called the Granby roll and and the Granby roll was my signature move and it was a great reversal because you see in the Granby roll as the aggression of my opponent intensified as he's over top of me seeking to throw my body to the mat I would execute a roll, and in a flail of legs, he would suddenly find himself on his back looking up at the lights. It was a move that could earn five points, and at best, a pin. And it could take me from a position of great weakness and disadvantage to a position of victory and strength. You see, this morning, we're talking about an even more dramatic reversal. In John chapter 20, as we look at this account of Jesus' resurrection from the gospel writer John, we see the great reversal. Going back to Genesis 3, mankind has felt the dominating control of sin and death. Time and time again, despite God's gracious prompting, rebellion always seems to have the upper hand. And as the pages of the Old Testament come to a close, there's silence. God's people have again turned him away. They find no reality to worship, no benefit in trusting him. As Malachi's prophecy wraps up, we're left waiting and wondering, will God remain silent forever? And yet at the beginning of this eyewitness account given by John, we're told that God has again spoken. The eternal word who was with the Father, he's, he's now tabernacling in human flesh so that all humanity, so that you and that I might see and understand the one true God. For a period of approximately three years, less than one presidential term, Jesus took on humanity and made his dwelling among men. During this time, he proclaimed the kingdom of God and called men and women to come follow him. Yet at the end of his life, this great teacher, healer, miracle worker, is accused of blasphemy, treason, and is crucified between two thieves. For followers like Mary, Peter, and Thomas, the death of Messiah, it seemed to bring about the death of all their dreams. Who would overthrow Rome? Who would restore the kingdom that God had had promised to David so many years ago? Would they be next on the chopping block? Yet on that first day after the Sabbath, these faithful women, despite their fear, despite their discouragement, and even in their weakness, they come. They come to the tomb. They want to honor Jesus despite the great calamity they face. As they approached the tomb in the dark, murky morning hours, they were about to experience a reversal. No, this was the reversal. The tomb that just 36 hours earlier held the body of their Messiah, it was empty. The stone was rolled away. And at first appearance, it seemed as though more tragedy was headed their way. Had someone stolen the body? But as we see throughout this chapter, God brought the reversal that all mankind needed. Jesus rose from the dead just as he had declared. Death was no more. Sin was defeated. Now, new life reigned supreme. Later on, Jesus would spend time both with individuals and and the group of his followers so that he might turn their fear into faith, that he might take their turbulence and bring tranquility and make the weak into great warriors in his kingdom. Are you in need of a great reversal in your life this morning? Do you find that the pursuit of the pleasures of this world don't satisfy? You need the great reversal. Are you afraid to speak of the surpassing worth of Christ? of his glory that is far more precious than homes and cars, than clothes and and all the the trappings of this world. You need the great reversal. Do you long to see who you are in secret, set free from the shackles of sin and rebellion? You need the great reversal. Perhaps you long to devote your life in service and, and ministry to Christ. You need the great reversal. In our time together this morning, I want to consider two aspects of the great reversal. First, we're going to consider the reality of God's great reversal. This is as real as it gets, folks. Secondly, secondly, we're going to look at the results. (laughs) There are powerful implications to what happened that Easter morning. So, the story before us this morning, it's no legend. It's not a mythical tale told to entertain and, and explain. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it, it's real. Bodily able to eat with his disciples, real. Walking the earth and appearing to, to over 500 witnesses, real. We need a real reversal, do we not? Yes, we do. Jesus, raised from the dead, empty tomb, meeting with his followers. This is as real as it gets. Consider with me this morning both the historical and theological reality of the risen Christ. First, the historical reality. Our confidence in the resurrection is built upon eyewitness testimony from multiple sources and at multiple times. If you're a student of history, it doesn't get any better than this. We see people from varied backgrounds, people of varied status in society, at multiple places over long periods of days encounter the living Christ. Now, if I were to tell you this morning that an alligator was on the loose on the riverfront, here in Peoria, some of the kids might say, Mom, Dad, we've gotta go down there and check it out. But you'd probably laugh at me. Alligators don't live in the Illinois River, though some scarier things might. But when a friend comes to lunch today and, and he says to you, you know, I was driving along the riverfront and I saw uh, this alligator on the sidewalks. It might strike you as strange. And then later on, your, your teenagers come home from a rainy picnic out in, in the park there on the riverfront and they, they tell this story of a, of a gator that came and it crawled up and it, it ate their, their picnic blanket and basket and everything. big. Nasty, white, brown teeth. Wow. There's something going on down there. Is there like a laughing gas? Or or what? what is the deal down on the riverfront? But if if your brother, a brother you've known, has never made up stories all their lives. Who has a brother like that? I want to know. But let's say you did. You, You had a brother like that. And your brother, he, he comes and he tells you, Matt, there's a gator down on the riverfront. We gotta go check this out, right? At that moment, your skepticism is going to start to turn to curiosity and perhaps even belief. Well, the fact is that when multiple witnesses see the same thing at different times, it provides historical credibility to their testimony. Notice here in in John 20, there are three unique events where eyewitnesses saw Jesus after the resurrection. In verse one, we have Mary Magdalene, uh, this one who after all had seven demons cast out of her earlier in her life. Uh, She is the first to see and experience the empty tomb. Then in verses two through seven, both Peter and this disciple whom Jesus loved, I, I believe this is most likely John, They arrive, they experience the the empty tomb and they encounter the risen Christ. Then in verses 11 through 29, we find uh, that Jesus, uh, he appears to Mary, he appears to to this group of disciples locked in a room and, and he appears to Thomas, the great skeptic in the group. And Jesus, he turns the doubt of Thomas to belief, allowing him to even touch the crucifixion marks on his body. Later in John 21, Jesus appears again to some of his disciples after they've returned to their occupation as fishermen. And as they're out there fishing, he he calls them to shore, and they, they have this amazing catch of fish, but Jesus says, bring me some fish, I want to eat. He shares a meal with them. Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, he speaks of Jesus appearing to more than 500 witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15. Also, the historian Luke records in Acts chapter 3 that Jesus appeared alive for a span of of over 40 days, offering many convincing proofs, teaching about the kingdom of God. This event is unparalleled in the history of the world. The resurrection of Jesus is affirmed by hundreds of witnesses, secular historians, and even more importantly, by the testimony that this very word of God bears. Friends, the resurrection is real. And because the resurrection is real, here's the amazing news. This great reversal that we're talking about this morning is real. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said, the great English preacher, regarding the the resurrection of Christ. He said, The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do not that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and we dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection is real. Now, I want to make one more point regarding the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection. Because you see, unlike Muhammad in Islam or, or other religious figures who speak also of resurrection, Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Today, we could find the remains of men like Muhammad. There's there's a shrine for him. You can take pilgrimage to go see the the remains of Muhammad, Confucius, and others. Their, Their remains can be found. Not so for Jesus. For thousands of years, no one has been able to produce the body of Jesus. So how can that be? What happened that morning after the Sabbath? What's clear here from our passage in John 20 is that there are aspects of the resurrected body that were discernible and related to Jesus' life on earth. Look with me at verses 16 and also verse 20. In verse 16, Jesus is approaching Mary and at first she thinks he's merely a gardener and even is concerned that he might be a thief or know who stole the body. But it's Jesus' voice that Mary recognizes. and She cries out, Rabboni, which means teacher. Then in verse 19 and and 20, Jesus comes and he he stands among them. And what does he do? He he shows them his hands. And the nail wounds there. He he shows them his side and the, the place where the spear pierced into his side. And just... Uh, A few verses later, he'll appear again to Thomas and show him once again his nail-pierced hands. At the same token, in John 21, the the reality of this resurrection is further confirmed as Jesus has breakfast with his disciples. Uh, This is a body that's not spiritual only. It's a body capable of eating and enjoying breakfast with his closest followers. You see, just in case we missed it, this body, though, is not like any other body. Because in verse 19, and again in verse 26, we see that Jesus is able to enter a locked room without a key. He meets with the disciples there, gathered for fear of the Jews, and he walks right in. And that happens twice. And so as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable has taken on the imperishable. And Christ is the firstfruits of all who will one day be raised from the dead. Isn't that amazing? Here Christ receives an imperishable body as the triumph song of victory over sin and death. And he parades with his followers so that they might see and believe. Now all of this is ample evidence of the truth that Jesus rose From the dead bodily. But I believe John has given us a a subtle yet even more powerful proof. Look with me again at at verses 6 and 7 here in in John chapter 20. What is the deal with the grave clothes here? Uh, Why does John seem to make a point of highlighting the the cleanliness uh, of Messiah? Is it the point of uh, folding up face clothes and linens? that John wants us to see Jesus would be a great house guest. I mean, he folds up his face cloth, he he puts it all there. Why does he include these seemingly trivial details? We see back in John chapter 11, another man was raised from the dead, Lazarus. Yet, as this dead man, Lazarus, hears the voice of the Son of God, and he comes out from the tomb after having been dead for four days, I mean, he is dead dead, stinky dead he comes out after 4 days what does it say in John 11:44 he was still bound his face same word his face cloth still on this poor guy needed help and so Jesus has to ask those around to remove the grave clothes here's the point poor Lazarus he was one of a few poor souls that tasted death twice You see, the resurrection he experienced in John chapter 11, though just as real, was of a totally different nature. He did not receive an imperishable body, but rather the restoration of his perishable one. Thus, he needed much assistance in removing those stinky grave clothes as he came out of the tomb. So here in in John 20, verses six through seven, Jesus needs no such assistance. This is the true lasting bodily resurrection. This is the resurrection that brought a real transformation of a lifeless earthly body to an imperishable eternal body. What a radical reversal as Jesus conquers the grave. Now having addressed the historical reality, I wanna spend a few moments considering the biblical and theological reality of Jesus' resurrection. First, this capstone event was not an accident or an afterthought. This was at the core of God's promised plan. We could go back to the book of Genesis and consider the story of of Abraham and Isaac as they marched up that mountain. And and Abraham, before marching up with his son, told his servants, wait here, we're going to worship and we're going to come back. Yet he knew He, he was called by God to offer Isaac as a sacrifice Well, the writer in Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that Abraham believed God was able to raise him from the dead. Even in Jesus' own ministry, he connected the story of the prophet Jonah who spent three days in the belly of of a great fish before being coughed up onto the shores of Nineveh to proclaim the truth about the one true God. He used that story to describe his pending death and resurrection. The empty tomb was exactly at the center of God's eternal plan. Now, let's consider two other theological realities of the resurrection. First, the resurrection of Jesus confirms his appointment as future judge. In Acts 17, we find the account of Paul's sermon in Athens, and it's a sermon to the great philosophers of the age in this amazing place called the Areopagus. Listen to what he said as he spoke to some of the wisest men the world claimed to know. In Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all, how? by raising him from the dead. This truth has huge implications. You see, one day we must all stand before Christ as the appointed judge and give an account for our lives. So let me ask you, friend, are you ready? God has fixed a day when Jesus will take the seat of judgment and forever establish God's righteousness. There will be no hiding, No excuses, no do-overs, no mulligans on that day. He will judge your relationships. He will judge your endless internet searches, the music you listen to, the movies you watch. He will weigh your stewardship of time, energy, and finances, all that he's entrusted to your care. Are you ready for the reality of a resurrected Christ who will soon sit as your eternal judge? Last, the risen Christ validates our justification before God. Because of sin, we are born guilty, condemned. All our efforts only merit one thing, death. When called to stand before Christ, our judge, on our own, there is none who can stand. But thanks be to God who first loved us and he sent his son to die in our place. Thus we can declare by faith nothing in my hands I bring, only to your cross I cling. So it's no surprise that in Paul's great chapter on justification, our full pardon and just satisfaction before a holy God, he ends with the centrality of Jesus' resurrection. Look at Romans chapter 4 with me. But the words it was counted to him, speaking of Abraham, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead the Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised, notice this, for our justification. You see, the resurrection is God's triumphal procession showing that he has conquered once and for all sin and death. The Jesus' last words, it is finished. The debt has been paid, we're acceptable. And that for you and for me, we can stand on that day before Christ, clothed in his righteousness, and we can have life, a life everlasting, a life of joy with him. You see, God has not left us to guess or to grope in the darkness when it comes to the way of salvation. Jesus came as the light of the world, piercing the darkness. Using the great aggression of sin and rebellion, God upheld his perfect justice <clears throat> Excuse me, by punishing his perfect son in our place. Then, by raising him from the dead, God declared victory once and for all over sin and death. This is our glorious hope, made sure by the real resurrection some 2,000 years ago. The evidence verifying the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection is truly remarkable. It is evidence, as Josh McDowell says, that demands a verdict. So how about you? Do you believe that Christ rose bodily from the grave? If you're here today, perhaps you've never before put the full weight of your trust in Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf and the power of his resurrection to liberate you from sin's harsh rule and provide you an eternity in right standing with God. I I urge you today, believe, believe. Christ will stand as judge one day, and only those who appeal to him by faith can find mercy. For those who have entrusted your life to Christ, may we not be silent about the reality of the resurrection. Far too often when we share the message of the gospel, Uh, We rightly uh, give mention of Christ's sacrificial substitutionary death, but often we leave out the empty tomb. Both our future judgment and our justification hinge on the reality of this event. Therefore, let us boldly proclaim that our Savior lives, and that he has gone before us, receiving an imperishable body, so that we, too, will one day join him and enjoy him forever. Well, So what? What's the big deal? What effect comes from what God brought about through the resurrection of his son? I believe here in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 31, we find four different realities, four different results that come from the resurrection. First, consider the presence of Jesus. Notice here in, in this story how the presence of Jesus Transforms confusion into clarity. You see, throughout this section, as, as Jesus encounters personally and corporately his followers, we are reminded that the resurrected Christ transforms ordinary people, ordinary people like you and like me, into exemplary servants of God. This is the remarkable reversal that God wants to bring about in each of our hearts and lives. And notice here, he does it through his presence. And in his presence, confusion turns to clarity. This is most evident in Mary. Uh, clearly, the early morning encounter at the tomb troubled her deeply. She's not only weeping, but she's convinced that the body of her master has been stolen. Uh, when confronted with two angels, a rather unusual sight, one that, that usually would have given her more confidence... Uh, Her confusion is so great, she asked them if they saw who stole the body. Even the resurrected Jesus does not immediately settle the muddied waters in her mind. Look at verse 15. Mary supposes he is a gardener, more importantly, a a likely suspect in stealing the body. Jesus is right there. He's right there with her. And what is the magic that brings about a great reversal for Mary that day? Jesus calls her by name, Mary. At the point where she hears her name on the voice of her master, her eyes are opened. The sound of her shepherd's voice awakens her from the despairing pursuit of an alleged thief, and she grabs hold of Jesus. Not only for Mary, but for all of Jesus' followers. He gave the gift of his presence to guide them think of matthew's gospel it it begins with this child born emmanuel god with us and it it ends in chapter 28 with this great commission jesus charged to his followers where he says lo i'm with you always even to the end of the age second moving along quickly here the transformation comes through the peace of jesus And this peace, the peace of Jesus, peace be with you, he says, this peace turns chaos to calm. For at least a number of the disciples, they're bunkered down in a locked room. There was great concern that the outrage which crucified the Messiah would next seek out those who had been with him. Luke highlights the turmoil inside those walls as he describes the reaction to the women coming back and telling about what they had seen. In Luke 24, he says, Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Notice their response. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Was this message just an early morning illusion? Were the women overcome with emotion? Clearly, the scene was not one of tranquility. Even after Peter and John run to explore the empty tomb and and see the grave clothes lying there, they head back back to the bunker in disarray, but God is about to bring about another reversal. He's going to turn the turbulence to tranquility. Three times in these seven verses, Jesus declares to this group, peace be with you. Consider for a moment how profound and critical these words are to his followers. Now there is peace with God by faith. Now there is peace with their Savior by faith. Now there is peace with each other through Christ's death. And resurrection. On the heels of great doubts, denials, and the dashing of their dreams for the restoration of God's kingdom, Jesus comes first to his disciples and extends to them peace. Only when Jesus once again calms the storm raging in their hearts can these ordinary men and women embrace the extraordinary task before them. The result of the resurrection for you and for me is a lasting peace, a lasting peace found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other way to find peace and pursue the will of God, which leads us to the third transformation. It's a transformation that brings purpose. For you see, these disciples, these followers of Jesus were trapped in a meaningless existence after the death of their Savior, and yet God is going to reverse that meaninglessness and give them significance and mission. Look at verse 21. In verse 21, Jesus tells them that in the same way the Father has sent him, he is preparing them for the time when they would become his witnesses. So in John 15, just a little bit earlier, before he had died, Jesus prepared them, and in John 15, verse 26, we read, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You see, Jesus now sends them out on a mission. They have purpose. And in case you might, might think, well, that, that really was only applying to, to those who were there that day, consider Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And so in John 17, verse 20, Jesus prays, Father, I do not ask for these only, speaking of those present who had seen him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. You see, he prayed for you and for me, that we too would embrace the reality of the resurrection and be about the mission that he's given to us as his witnesses. This transformation from meaninglessness to mission is not merely for the original disciples, it's for us, so that we would be his ambassadors What are you living for this morning? If you at all feel like you're wandering aimlessly, seeking satisfaction in your career, in the Facebook friends that you have, in the style you project, in the people you know, or the religious efforts that you make, you need a reversal. You need your wandering to be transformed to God's will. Believe in the reality of the risen Christ. Take up your cross and follow him. Repent, laying aside the sin that so easily entangles. And for the joy set before you, embrace the work that God has for you. Don't allow your past to dictate your future. Assembled in this story are outcasts, cowards, and skeptics. They are the instruments of God's great delight that he wants to use to spread this message of hope to a lost and dying world. And this brings us to to kind of our final lesson from the story this morning. The last reversal is where God's power is promised. In appearing to this group, locked in a room, a transformation from cowering to confidence takes place. And it takes place through the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You see, each member of the triune God is actively at work in the unfolding of God's eternal promise plan. Look at verse 22. You see, symbolic of Genesis twenty-one or Genesis 1, when God breathed life into Adam and Eve's lifeless forms, now Jesus breathes on the disciples as a picture of what was to happen after He ascended to sit at the right hand of his Father. The historian Luke records more specifics about this conversation, and the crucial connection to our mission in Acts 1:8. Listen to what he writes. "But you will receive power. when, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end? The earth. Long ago, God told Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In the coming of Jesus of Nazareth, the seed that would crush the serpent and the Savior who would bless the whole world, the seed of Abraham has appeared. On the cross, sin and death were defeated. The empty tomb and the bodily resurrection of Christ are the victory prayed, which display God's triumph and the fulfillment of his timeless plan for all to see. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is the great reversal. As we wrap up this morning, we're we're left with a choice, a a fork in the roads. As, As John concludes this chapter, as we see even the skeptic Thomas acknowledge Jesus as his Lord and his God, there's a blessing. There's a blessing for us if we would only believe. Look at verse 29. Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, have you only believed in me because you saw these things? Oh, blessed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And in case we're wondering, John here in in verses 30 and 31 makes crystal clear what his purpose in writing this entire book is all about. He says, I write these things so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, so that by believing, you might have life in his name. You see, by faith, we can have the presence of Christ. By faith, we can have the peace that only Christ can offer. By faith, we are given a purpose, a mission in this life. And by faith, and the presence of God's Holy Spirit living, dwelling in us, We have the power of God to be his witnesses, his ambassadors. Do you believe? I'm going to pray and then I want to share with you in closing the words of a great Easter hymn, Worship Christ the Risen King. And then I'll close with a benediction from Hebrews 13 that that really celebrates our great shepherd raised from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that you would awaken faith in our hearts, faith to behold the glory and beauty of the risen Christ, and that we would lay hold of him by faith, and that we would embrace the mission that you have for each and every one of us. Oh, Father, come to us. Work in us and through us. Loose our lips. Capture our hearts, Lord, with Christ and Christ alone that the power which raised him from the dead might be actively at work in us as your witnesses, your ambassadors in a lost and broken world. Father, I ask this for the glory of your name. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Listen to the words of this great hymn, Worship Christ the Risen King. Rise, O church, and lift your voices. Christ has conquered death and hell. Sing as all the earth rejoices. Resurrection anthems swell. Come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ, the risen King. See the tomb where death has laid him. Empty now, its mouth declares. Death and I could not contain him, for the throne of life he shares come and worship come and worship worship christ the risen king hear the earth protest and tremble see the stone removed with power all hell's minions may assemble but cannot withstand this hour he has conquered he has conquered christ the lord the risen king doubt may lift its head to murmur scoffers mock and sinners jeer but the truth proclaims a wonder. Thoughtful heart receives with cheer. He is risen. He is risen. Now receive the risen King. We acclaim your life, O oh Jesus. Now we sing your victory. Sin or hell may seek to seize us, but your conquest keeps us free. Stand in triumph, church. Stand in triumph. Worship Christ, the risen King. Would you stand with me please as we close with the benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good, everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever And all those who would believe in the risen Christ would say, Amen.